This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. Learn more about their momentum at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. I got up on that Monday morning, and I just had this feeling all over me, and I just started praying. I knew something was wrong. A mother knows. This is The Last Ride from the USA Today Network Florida and WDCU Public Media, distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Janine Zeitlin. This is Episode 3, The Disappearance of Terrence Williams. And then I had to fight to file a missing persons report. Not not physically fight, but mentally fight. Um, I recall there was a, a cop, a deputy that came out to the house here in Colony County. And it just wasn't important. Uh, you know, you could see expressions on the faces. It was just like, okay, he's black. So what, he's missing? No, they weren't nice. <laughs> they were not nice at all. That's Marcia Williams. She's the mother of Terrence Williams, who vanished in Naples, Florida, on January 12, 2004. When 27-year-old Terrence didn't return home, didn't show up for work, didn't call her, didn't call anyone, she reached out for help. I contacted the sheriff's department. At first, they were no help. You know, he's an adult. Marcia contacted her family back in Tennessee, and they began their own detective work. My family started making phone calls um, to the hospitals, to the marks, tow companies, just everywhere they could think of. And my sister called and she said, um, we found this car. It was told from the Naples Memorial Garden Cemetery. So that was a start. The family went to the cemetery and found witnesses, who told them a deputy had pulled Terrence over nearby. The deputy put Terrence in a patrol car and drove off. The deputy then returned alone and had the car towed. Terrence's stepfather, also named Terrence, Terrence Bug, told me how another critical piece of information came to light. It was from the towing company. The gentleman explained that he was told to pick the car by the police officer. That's how we got his name. Stephen Calkins. He showed us the receipt and his name on it and everything. The name on the receipt, Stephen Calkins, was their next clue. But they couldn't find an arrest report or any report showing Calkins had contact with Terrence. They would later learn Deputy Calkins was a veteran of the Collier County Sheriff's Office. Would you say there was a particular moment when you really knew, like, this is not right? Stephen Calkins was the last person seen with Terrence and Felipe Santos. Felipe, a Mexican immigrant in his early 20s, was a new father to a baby girl when he vanished three months before Terrence. Calkins has never been arrested or charged in the disappearances and denies wrongdoing. Yet he was fired from the sheriff's office after lying and remains their only person of interest. In this episode, we'll hear the lengths Terrence's family took to conduct their own investigation when at first they were dismissed by law enforcement. I'll talk with Terrence's mother. She'll tell us what he was like as a son. We'll also hear Deputy Calkins's curious reaction when the sheriff's office called him at home a few days after Terrence vanished. And finally, we'll listen to the dispatch calls that spurred even more questions about what really happened. Not long after my first phone call with Terrence's stepfather, I drove 10 hours from southwest Florida to Chattanooga, Tennessee to see him. 
That's where Marcia, her son, and Terrence Bug lived before moving to Naples, and where Bug lived when we met in 2020. We're not in the deep south. This is sort of the mid-south, but this is the seat of hospitality. Well, you've been very hospitable to us. Absolutely, absolutely. I wanted to hear more about how the Collier Sheriff's Office handled his stepson's disappearance, and to learn the sort of details that don't come through in official records, because I was seeking emotional accuracy, too. Bug and I sat facing maple trees in the backyard of his friend's house. It was the same yard where he and Marcia married. At the ceremony, her son gave her away. He and Marcia divorced two years after Terrence disappeared. Bug believed the trauma of the disappearance caused it. He moved back to Tennessee. It still pained him that Terrence came up missing on his watch. The whole thing was really strange because my wife is the one who found all these little ticks that they weren't marking off. You know, the day that she realized it, because her and her son were very close. I mean, she still washed his clothes. She did everything for him. Everything she possibly could, she did. So when he didn't show up to his apartment, she was ballistic. She went off the rails. And she called me and told me that he was missing. I said, what do you mean missing? How is he missing? After the family talked to witnesses and learned more puzzling details, they shared their findings with the sheriff's office. They knew everything we knew. As soon as we knew, they knew. And not by phone call. We made trips. Every time we knew something, we went to the station and we said, here's what we know. Write it down. Yeah. So when you went to the sheriff's office to report him missing, what did they initially tell you? First they said, you can't report a person missing for 48 hours. Basically what he said, we don't know where your son is. So after 48 hours, we went back and we started to share the information that we found. Mm -hmm. That's when all the denials began. Well, we don't think that Mr. Caucus did anything. He didn't do this, he didn't do that. I said, well, the evidence shows different. Bug reached out to Sheriff Don Hunter by phone. I told him, I said, one of your police officers has done something real dirty. He said, uh, I stand by my police officer. I said, I don't care what you do. I said, but I'm telling you this right now. How is it possible that he had a car towed and there's no record of it? I said, something's wrong with that. He said, oh, stuff like that could happen all the time. I said, no, that's a lie. I said, you're a liar and you got dirty cops. They never gave any other explanation but what he said until it started looking real funny. Hunter, who has since retired from the sheriff's office, told us that he treated the disappearances like any other potentially criminal incidents. Eventually, the sheriff's office did take a missing person report for Terrence. On January 15, 2004, three days after he vanished. A brief aside, don't let someone tell you to wait to report a person missing. An expert told us the first few days are when you have the best chances for leads, before people's memories begin to fade. Florida law now requires law enforcement to take a report for any missing adult. But a sheriff's office spokeswoman said it didn't back then. In the report, Terrence's stepfather made their worries for his safety very clear. Bug read a portion from it when we met. The reporter stated that the missing person does not have a history of psychiatric problems, is not taking any kind of medication, and does not have a history of depression. The reporter stated that he feels something is gravely wrong and that the missing person must be in trouble in some way. Bug said he and Terrence's mother pushed to get more information from the sheriff's office, but were left in the dark. 
most of what happened just made us feel really, really useless. Because here we are, we know what's going on. We can't do nothing about it. It sounded like some members of the sheriff's office didn't initially believe that Terrence could be a victim. According to the Black and Missing Foundation, missing adults of color are often mislabeled as being involved in crime. Though the sheriff's office did list Terrence as endangered in their missing person report. Terrence's family continued their own search. We looked everywhere we could possibly look. I mean, I scoured through the bush. Those bushes over there, across from the cemetery, I walked all up in there looking, you know, looking for him, looking for some evidence, you know, but we never found no evidence of him. Somebody just disappeared off the face of the earth. That means somebody did something to him. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute where hundreds of researchers and clinicians make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. See why nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Learn more about their momentum. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Marcia Williams has not allowed the injustice of her son's disappearance to dim. She stayed in Naples and has never stopped reminding people that Terrence is not just another face on a missing person poster. If I left and went anywhere else, it just wouldn't be right because I know I'm leaving my son here wherever he is. So I have to stay until the finish. I spoke with Marcia in 2020 over Zoom during the height of the pandemic. It had been several years since I'd interviewed her, though we'd kept in touch over social media. She's in her early 60s now. She was in her 40s when Terrence disappeared. In this particular interview, her lawyers wouldn't let her go into specifics of the case because she had filed a lawsuit alleging that Calkins had abducted and murdered Terrence. 
Calkins was fighting the suit. She could talk about her only child and the loss she has learned to live with but not accept. On the police cruiser, it says to serve and to protect. That did not happen. That did not happen. And it's only by the grace of God that I am hanging on, seriously. But something is pushing me. Um, It's not fair. It's not fair for anyone. It's not fair for my son. It's not fair for my grandchildren. So I'm just, I'm, I'm continuously pushing. Just how can you let it go? Someone took your only child? I've long admired her strength and persistence. And now that I'm also a mother, I can't imagine what that kind of grief feels like. Sometimes I will go through his things and um, I will read what he wrote. And he was um, poetic. He just, he put it all in order. Yeah. I like going back, looking at his signature or his handwriting. And I still see him today. Um, I see him in my dreams. He talks to me in my dreams. Just different things, uh, nothing specific, because you can, wanting to find out what happened, you know, my life is not complete, okay? I know not to ask him, where are you? Show me where I need to go. He might tell me it's not time. I still miss him, I miss him so much. Marcia had Terrence when she was 17. His father wasn't in the picture much. She felt like she and Terrence had grown up together. His favorite thing when he came in the house, he would go like, hello, mother. How are you today? He was silly, but he was serious. When he was a boy, she watched him conquer video games like Pac-Man. She worried about him breaking bones when he played football. As he matured, she marveled at his depth, what he read, including the predictions of Nostradamus. And he loved music. His favorite music was... Rap, he was really off into Tupac. I still have CDs. I'm serious because he was so particular how he kept them. They were like in sleeves and I I still haven't touched them. Terrence had some turbulent years in Tennessee. He had four children and owed child support. He had an arrest record there but had never been in prison. After Marcia and Terrence Bug married in 2002, they left Chattanooga to start a new chapter in Florida. The younger Terrence followed not long after. He just wanted a clean slate. You know, sometimes you, you just want to leave town from where you've grown up. He stayed pretty busy. He was working on a path, getting himself together. And that's when he said he wanted all of his children to move here. He really loved his children. And I believe that this has affected them in so many ways, and they really don't deserve it. He also had another big goal. He wanted to open up a barber shop. Days before he disappeared, one of my church members had gotten all of the paperwork ready for him. In Naples, Terrence moved in with Marcia's colleague, Jason Gonzalez, who worked at the same bank. Jason was closer in age to Terrence. They became friends. Marcia said her son seemed content in Naples. And the reason why I say that is because he was with his mama. It was mama this, mama that, mama. 
we would be on the phone and we would talk an hour or so. I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm not doing a lot of talking. I'm listening. And um, then I would hang up and the phone would ring again. Guess who it was? Terrence calling back because he wanted to mention something else. Terrence relied on his mom for rides. He didn't have a driver's license. Before he moved to Naples, he had been charged in Chattanooga for a DUI and driving without a valid license. Remember those details because they're important as we get into the investigation. So I would take him to work every morning. And then he decided he wanted to get another job in the evenings. So I would pick him up, take him to his other job. Terrence worked in construction and had a part-time job at Pizza Hut in Bonita Springs, a small town just north of Naples. It was in the hours after one of his shifts that he would disappear. He was happy to be there, happy to have a job. That's Tammy Need in a 2019 interview. Need had been a manager at the Pizza Hut where Terrence was a cook, but he did a little bit of everything. He's not like a lot of people, like you go through the drive-thru and the people are like, Oh, man, I got to work today, you know. No, always a smile, good attitude, friendly. He got along with everyone there. Some of the employees would get together after work. They often ended up at co-worker Christina Birmingham's apartment in Bonita Springs. On Sunday, January 11th, 2004, the night before he disappeared, Terrence joined the party. My colleague Melanie Payne interviewed Birmingham. Was this the first time Terrence came? Yeah, yeah, the first and only time. I don't think he drank that much, really. I mean, you know, like, I'm a, I'm a lush. Like, <laughs> I drink him down. But I don't really think, I think he was kind of taking it easy, you know? I do. I mean, it was just, I don't know. I feel like it was just a normal day. And then it became a nightmare. And then it became a nightmare, <laughs> literally. Terrence had asked his roommate, Jason Gonzalez, for a ride to the party. Jason described the conversation to a detective in a 2015 interview. He wanted me to go party with him. And I said, dude, I have my kids. He's like, look, man. And I did find that a little weird, that he was insistent on it. I told him, no. I said, you know the rules. And I said, this is my time with my kids. And so he was like, oh, all right. Jason told investigators Terrence had just bought a car, a 1983 white Cadillac. And Terrence's family was not happy about it because he couldn't drive legally. His stepfather told an investigator they kept a close eye on the car. Whenever that car moved, we knew about it because the roommate would tell us. And, you know, we, we did that because, and he, he felt for, for his safety because, you know, you're doing it illegally, so don't do it. And we all told him the same thing, don't drive that car. But Terrence drove to the party. We wanted to know more about what was going on with Terrence in the hours before his disappearance. Did anything weird happen at the party? Was there anything off about the way he was acting? Melanie and another colleague, Ryan Mills, asked Birmingham about it in their 2019 interview. So what time did the party start? Um, it was probably like 10, 30, maybe 11 o'clock at night. It was late because, you know, we work nights, so. So this is not, let's all get crazy. Right, yeah. Druggy. Oh, God, no, no, not, no one even did drugs. I mean, maybe a little pot, but, but I mean, that's it. All in all, it sounded low-key. Generally, Southwest Florida is low-key. But do you remember Terrence at the party? Was he hanging out with anybody in particular? Was he acting strange in any way? No. No. 
we were just all sitting on the porch. There was like, I mean, just normal hangout, you know? I remember him being quiet. Another person at the party said that Terrence was drinking rum, straight. He estimated Terrence drank four tumblers a quarter full throughout the party that lasted into early Monday, January 12th, 2004. Birmingham said that Terrence left alone around 6 or 7 in the morning. As far as you know, he was leaving to go. Oh, yeah, he left. Yeah, he definitely left. No doubt about it. We don't know where Terrence was from when he reportedly left the party to around 9 or 10 a.m. when witnesses at the cemetery said they saw a deputy pull him over. But Terrence's roommate, Jason Gonzalez, grew worried when Terrence didn't return home. He called Marcia. So the next day, his roommate called. He said, have you heard from Terrence? Hadn't heard from him. He kept making phone calls. I kept calling people. Nobody had heard from him. Jason told investigators that Terrence had a rule. If his family didn't hear from him in three days, something was wrong. He was very open, like, what his whereabouts were and everything like that, even with his mother. But I do know something along those lines is that if he were to go missing, like, uh, couldn't call or anything, he says to go look for him after three days. That was, like, one of his rules with his mom. and So that's why when the three days went by, I'm like, hey, okay, he's over to dance. Mm-hmm. That's why it was cause for alarm, because he was, he's always, if he's not talking to his mother, he's talking to his aunt. Terrence's family filed the missing person report three days after he was last seen. Though as we've heard, they tried to do so earlier. When Terrence's mother and stepfather found out Terrence's car had been towed from Naples Memorial Gardens, they went in search of more clues. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel, clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. 
Visit schwab.com slash thematic investing. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. Naples Memorial Gardens is a beautiful flower-filled cemetery less than a mile from the beach and is on the same road as the shopping center where Felipe Santos was last seen with Deputy Calkins, Amakli Road. Both areas are in North Naples, Calkins's region to patrol. When they went to the cemetery, Terrence's mother, Marcia Williams, had the foresight to bring a notary to take sworn affidavits from the cemetery workers. In our phone conversation, Terrence Bug shared what the workers said. And we told them that we were looking for our son, and we told them what kind of car he had, and they said, we saw him, a young lady and a gentleman. They worked in the sales office at the cemetery. And they told us that they saw the cop pull them over. The employees said that between 9 and 10 in the morning, they saw a deputy use lights but no sirens to pull a car over, according to interview transcripts. The driver parked in the cemetery lot. The workers did not name Calkins or Terrence, but described Terrence and his car. In the case files, there seems to be no question it was them. Calkins and Terrence were alone. One worker heard the deputy ask, don't you have any ID at all? According to the workers, Calkins patted Terrence down and asked him to get into the back of his patrol car, which Terrence did. It was a calm exchange, no signs of trouble. Then a witness saw the deputy walk to Terrence's car and kneel in the driver's side seat briefly. The deputy told the workers he'd be back for the car. Then he left with Terrence. Somewhere between 30 to 90 minutes later, they said the deputy came back, alone. Then, Calkins got out of his patrol car and into Terrence's Cadillac. Calkins drove the Cadillac out of the lot and parked it on the shoulder. Witnesses then saw Calkins throw Terrence's keys on the ground. A tow truck arrived in the early afternoon to take the Cadillac. When you heard what the cemetery workers said about what the deputy did, that the car was in the lot, and then they said the deputy actually moved it out of the lot, what went through your mind in that moment? At that point, I thought that he was doing something that he shouldn't have been doing. It made me very suspicious. The details piling up a nerved bug. How could a cop pull over his stepson and not take him to jail? The car was not registered, and he didn't have the proper tags on it. He didn't have a license, and he didn't have insurance. That's four infractions right there. So if it happened to you, where do you think you would have been sitting that day? But Calkins never took Terrence to jail. My colleagues Ryan and Melanie tracked down the truck driver, Mark Webster, who towed Terrence's Cadillac from the cemetery. They interviewed him by phone in 2019. You talked about how this case has kind of stuck with you. Uh, well, yeah, it has kind of been on my mind. Uh, when I pulled up to this car, and both the doors to it were open, and, you know, it had pulled in like he had been being pulled over by the deputy, you know. So I pulled up to the vehicle and spoke with the deputy, and the deputy had said that the vehicle was abandoned. And at that point, I didn't really know too much about towing, but the keys were left with the vehicle, and the license plate was still with the vehicle. Webster told an investigator that the keys were left on the ground next to an open door. Back then, it seemed odd, but he didn't realize how odd it was until years later. Now, after 20 years of towing and towing over 100 abandoned vehicles now, I've never towed a car again that's ever been abandoned with the keys and a tag on it. 
Not only that, there were personal belongings in there. There was like a hairbrush and sunglasses and things like that that you just wouldn't leave in a vehicle, I guess, if you were abandoning it, you know? Two packs of Newports, the brand Terrence smoked, were left inside too. If the packs were full, it would be surprising that a smoker would leave them both behind. Once Terrence's family made the connections between the cemetery, the tow truck, and Calkins, they persisted in trying to get answers, including from Deputy Calkins himself. Marcia spoke about that in a 2018 interview with my former colleague Amy Osher. It really got bad when he wouldn't return my phone call. I have not heard from him to have this day. Have you ever spoken with him or seen him, been in the same room with him? No. No. Marcia said she left messages like crazy. She was told that someone at the sheriff's office had left Terrence's picture in Calkins's mailbox. But Calkins never attempted to help her, she said, which made her more suspicious. Terrence's aunt also pressed the sheriff's office for information. Finally, a dispatcher called Calkins at home. The call would raise an early red flag about the consistency of Calkins's statements. It was January 16th, the day before Terrence's 28th birthday, and four days after Terrence disappeared. You can hear the sounds of Calkins's family life in the background. He's married with three children. Hello? Hi, this is Kathy and dispatch. Is Stephen? Well, yes and no. He's a little nutty, but he's here. Hold on. Hello? Steve? Yeah? I hate to bother you at home on your day off, but this woman's been bothering us all day. You towed a car from Vanderbilt on 111th Monday, a Cadillac. Do you remember it? No. I mean, the people at the cemetery are telling her you put somebody in the back of your vehicle and arrested them, and I don't show you arresting anybody. I never arrested nobody. That's what I thought. Okay. Okay. I gotta think about this one for a while. But you're sure no one was with that vehicle? No. It was around 12:30 in the afternoon. Jesus, I can't remember. You're going to be my age, huh? Oh, damn. <laughs> what do they want? Somebody at the cemetery is telling the mother that you picked up the driver and he's been missing since Monday. Oh, for Pete's sake. And I said he didn't ask anybody. No. So, she keeps calling and, well, there's got to be some way you can get a hold of him. She's been talking. I think she spoke to every dispatcher in here today. Oh. Oh. But you're sure you didn't? Are you sure there was no one with it? No, I ain't arrested nobody in a long time. Okay. All right. Okay. Sorry. The dispatcher called Terrence's aunt back. I talked to Deputy Calkins, mm-hmm. and he did not pick anybody up with that vehicle. Okay, but someone picked them up. The people at the cemetery said that they saw a police officer in a Collier County Sheriff's Department car put him in the car and take him away. Okay, if there was an officer out there, there's over 900 officers here. We'd have to have a car number to know who it was. There's no way I can find out if somebody gave him a ride somewhere. There was no report taken. There is no report taken from that area on Monday. No one picked him up. So whoever is telling you this is either giving you wrong information or it's not the same person. Deputy Calkins had just told the sheriff's office that he didn't remember that interaction or picking someone up, but the dispatcher shut down any potential for doubt. Instead, she insisted that it was Terrence's family who was getting bad information. However, 
A few days after this exchange, Calkins would change his story. He would remember what happened with Terrence and wrote his first official report on the incident. In that report, Calkins acknowledged there was someone with the car. He said he saw a white, older model Cadillac that looked to be having car trouble. He motioned for the driver to pull over. Calkins said Terrence told him he was late for work and asked for a ride to a nearby Circle K. So Calkins said he gave him a ride there. He said he warned Terrence that his tag was expired. Then he said he returned to Terrence's car and discovered that there was no registration in the glove box. His report says he towed it because he thought it was abandoned or maybe even stolen. One of the first things I noticed about this report is that Calkins listed Terrence as a suspect. The second is that his last name is listed as unknown. But Calkins did know Terrence's last name the day he pulled him over because he used Terrence's full name when he called dispatch to check for warrants. We'll hear that call in a bit. Also, Terrence didn't work at Circle K, though it is a few miles away from the Pizza Hut where Terrence was scheduled to work. And if you've listened to previous episodes, you know that the sheriff's office heard a very similar story from Deputy Calkins when Felipe Santos vanished. Calkins said he gave Felipe a ride to another Circle K. Investigators checked that Circle K video, which showed the inside of the store, and did not see Felipe. So, two missing men, three months apart, same deputy, similar story, but different Circle Ks. Those two Circle Ks were four miles apart. When Terrence's stepfather discovered that Calkins said he gave Terrence a ride to a Circle K, Terrence Bug went to the store himself and asked to see surveillance video. And we got to look at it. And we knew he was lying. We watched all day. Nothing. Nothing. I can't tell you what's on the footage. It's not in the case files. But we know investigators also watched the video and didn't see Terrence. Records say the cameras showed only the inside of the store, but Bug recalled... They had surveillance uh, that pointed towards the road. The cop car never came into the lot. He found the parallel Circle K stories hard to believe. Maybe there's a time warp at the Circle K. They walked through and just vanished. Or maybe UFOs came and got them. That would have been a better story. Yeah. I would have swallowed a little bit of that. But... You just dropped him off at the Circle K. (sighs) And then there were these dispatch calls. What Calkins said and what he left out would change the course of his 17-year policing career. Calkins made the calls shortly before 1 p.m. A few hours after, witnesses saw Calkins put Terrence in his patrol car and drive away. But Calkins mentions none of this. And according to the sheriff's operations manual, he should have reported the traffic stop with Terrence. He also should have included the location and identifying information. We don't have clear recordings of the first few calls. They were brief. The transcripts show Calkins called in the tag for Terrence's Cadillac without acknowledging that the car belonged to someone he had pulled over. About 10 minutes later, Calkins called to speak with a dispatcher named Dave. The audio quality is not great either, so I'll lead you through it. Calkins called Terrence's car a homie Cadillac, a big old white piece of junk Cadillac, and said, I'm towing it. He said it was a Signal 11, code for abandon. 
But Calkins would have known the vehicle was not abandoned. He supposedly had just given Terrence a ride. In the call, Calkins acts like he doesn't know who the car belongs to. At one point, he jokes that the driver could be in the cemetery and would come back to find his car towed. And Calkins said the car was blocking the road. Yet according to a witness, it was Calkins who drove the Cadillac from the cemetery parking lot onto the shoulder of the road. Terrence had parked in the lot when Calkins pulled him over. We heard only a portion due to the poor quality, but I listened to all of it. It's offensive. Marcia's lawyer said that hearing Calkins was akin to seeing someone in blackface. The sheriff's office called the language pejorative. And Marcia said this to me in a recent interview. Because he called Terrence a homie. And Terrence's name is Terrence Williams, not homie Williams. Terrence belonged to someone. And then he couldn't remember. Yeah, mm-mm, no. In a letter to the sheriff several months after the call, Calkins would acknowledge poor judgment. He said the conversation was not meant to be offensive, but admitted it was in poor taste. On the day Terrence disappeared, about 15 minutes after the call in question, Calkins contacted dispatch again and got someone else. This time, he asked for a warrant check. This part is also tough to make out. Deputy Calkins spelled out Terrence's first and last name, but did not report why he was asking for a warrant check. Nor did he mention he pulled Terrence over and gave him a ride. But recall that when Calkins wrote his first report about this stop, Calkins listed Terrence's last name as unknown. In the call we just heard, Calkins described him as a black male with a birth date of April 1, 1975. This was not Terrence's real birth date. But the April 1st date is significant. According to the case files, the April Fool's birth date is one Terrence gave out when he didn't want people to know his real birth date. As Calkins waited for the results of the warrant check, this is what he did. He doop-da-dooed. The dispatcher reported back that there were no local warrants. There are many issues in those dispatch calls that are hard to explain. Now retired detective Kevin O'Neill shared his take on the call between Calkins and his dispatcher friend in a 2020 interview with CNN reporter Thomas Lake. O'Neill was the Collier Sheriff's detective on the cases for more than a decade. We were able to get a copy of this interview because it's part of the public record. The call itself is despicable. There's no worry about it. But on an investigative note, it's revealing to me that he lied. Why doesn't he just say, you know, I'm towing the car, stop the guy. He lied. He never mentions the encounter. I think later on he explains it. Well, he didn't want it out there that he was giving people rides. Does that make sense? No. The bottom line is he lied. To recap, here's what we've got so far. The day Terrence disappeared, Calkins didn't call in the traffic stop with Terrence like he was supposed to. He didn't write a report either. And he didn't tell his friend at the sheriff's office anything about Terrence. He even said the car had been abandoned. But somehow, he had Terrence's full name when he checked for warrants the same day. A few days later, when the sheriff's office called Calkins at home and asked him about picking someone up at the cemetery, Calkins didn't recall much of anything. But when he wrote his first official report, it was filled with details that he hadn't disclosed to sheriff's dispatchers. We'll dig deeper into Calkins' official statements in the coming episodes, but there are many questions like how he got that bogus birth date, 
that Culkins could never fully explain to investigators. The lack of clarity on what actually happened probably led to this step by the Collier County Sheriff's Office, the agency investigating the disappearances, and also Culkins' longtime employer. Okay, you know why you're here today? Yes. And what's that? I gave somebody a ride and he disappeared. The sheriff's office asked Deputy Calkins to do a polygraph. Now, today's exam is going to be very simple. We're going to have a conversation about January 12th and this somebody by the name of Terrence who is now missing. Okay? And it's going to be strictly about you dropping him off. Mm-hmm. You know, the most important thing today is that you do not lie to me in this room today. That's on the next episode of The Last Ride from the USA Today Network Florida and WGCU Public Media and distributed by the NPR Network. In the next episode, we'll listen to what the exam revealed and why the sheriff's office didn't need a polygraph to know Calkins was lying about parts of his story. And we'll review some of the strange things investigators did and said to try to explain away Terrence's disappearance. Sadly, Terrence Bug died in December 2021. Our condolences to his loved ones. If you have any information about the disappearances of Terrence Williams and Felipe Santos, call the Collier County Sheriff's Office at 239-252-9300 or Crime Stoppers at 800-780-8477. To share something with me, I'm at jzeitlin at g-a-n-n-e-t-t dot com. The audio editor and co-producer is Amanda Inscore of Naples Daily News and the News Press. Sound design by Richard Chinqui of WGCU. Original theme song by Christopher Russell. Audio assistance by Jared Gonzalez. Reporting and research by Ryan Mills, Melanie Payne, and me. I'm also your producer and writer. Executive producers are Laura Grenius and WGCU executive producer Pamela James. Additional support from Cindy McCurry-Ross, Amy Shoemaker, and Corey Lewis. Legal Review by Tom Curley. Thanks to Carol Rose of the Palm Beach Daily News and Leon Tucker of the Lakeland Ledger and Florida investigative reporter Kate Samini for the guest edits. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us wherever you get it. It really does make a difference. Please support local journalism like this by subscribing to the Naples Daily News or the News Press and donating to WGCU Public Media or your local news source. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Whether you're planning a weekend away or an international adventure, All Trips Annual Travel Insurance can protect every trip you take for the next 365 days. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little breaks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge 
Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.